0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: You know, I tried to make my, my home in astronomy at MIT and in the sciences, and there was something missing. It's like a dream never goes away. It just, If you leave it, it's still on the side of the road, as I say in my book. You know, it was lying on the side of the road somewhere, and I was down the highway, and eventually it caught up with me. You know? <laughs> and it was like, hey, what about me? You know, you know that acting thing? You, don't you still love me? You know, and, and the answer was yes.
0: That's Aomawah Shields. And the tussle for her attention between astronomy and acting has both dominated and enriched her life. She's now the leader of a team checking out newly discovered planets beyond our solar system for the likelihood they could support life. As an African-American woman in a field traditionally dominated by white males, that already makes her unusual. What makes her unique is that much of her life has been spent furthering her other passion, acting. And that's put her skills in connecting and communicating on vivid display in her new book, Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe. This is going to be fun because... I always enjoy talking to people who have two completely different skills. Sometimes they seem divergent, very divergent. For instance, you're a skilled, highly trained actress, and you're a highly trained, highly skilled astronomer, both at the same time. And I get the impression they don't seem all that divergent to you.
1: They don't any longer. But at one time, I felt that they were, and I wasn't sure how to reconcile that you know I would tell people that I loved these two things acting and astronomy and often the response I got was whoa that's so weird those two things are so different how did you come to fall in love with those two things and I think their surprise I interpreted as there's something wrong with this
0: you internalized their surprise
1: I did yeah and I turned that into a conflict that I needed to um, reconcile, and spent many years trying to figure out how to do that.:
0: Which was your first love? Was it acting or astronomy?:
1: It was astronomy. It was the stars looking up at the sky and wondering what was out there. Um, and as long as as far back as I can remember, I asked myself and sort of asked the sky when I looked up at the sky, what is, what is out there? How far out can you really go? And then when I was shown the movie Space Camp with my, the rest of my seventh grade class, and I saw a movie about kids that get accidentally launched into space <laughs> on the space shuttle, I thought, wow, I want to do that. And that really set me on a, on a track.
0: So that was when you were 12 Yes. When did it strike you that you wanted to act?
1: I had done some acting in the fifth grade, but it was always this little like extra thing, like a little thing that my class did. But it never dawned on me that that was something that I could make into a career or that I wanted to do enough to make a career out of uh, until... I went on to high school and had forgotten about acting. I was astronomy. It was astronomy all the way. And then some friends dragged me along to an audition for the school play Steel Magnolias. And I ended up getting a part. And from that point on, it was, I did both. And I I realized how much I loved acting. And I started doing production after production. And in high school, I didn't have to choose. I got to do plays almost every term. I was the proctor at the observatory and got to, like, show the public Orion and the moon and, um, you know, Andromeda Galaxy. And those two things were, like, my, my two things. So at the end of high school, I finally had to make a choice. At least i it seemed like I did. I had always wanted to go to MIT, and I applied early, got in. And then, again, the, the same thing kept happening, which is that, you know, I would I would try to choose and then realize that one thing on its own wasn't enough. You know, I tried to make my my home in astronomy at MIT and in the sciences, and there was something missing. It's like a dream never goes away. It just... If you leave it, it's still on the side of the road. As I say in my book, you know, it's, it was lying on the side of the road somewhere and I was down the highway and eventually it caught up with me you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, hey, what about me? You know, you know that acting thing, you, don't you still love me? You know, and, and the answer was yes. I needed some sort of creative outlet. And so I even, I started to take acting classes at MIT. They do exist.
0: I didn't um, know that. <laughs>
1: And then again, I, was, I, I got to the end senior year at MIT, and there was a crossroads again. Do I apply to grad schools in astronomy or grad schools in acting? And I did both because, right, I had both in my sights. I shot for the moon with the acting. I applied to Yale, The Globe um, at UCSD, and um, NYU. And I didn't get into any of those those three but I got into astronomy grad school and I got into the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and it was like a full ride, PhD in astrophysics. And so I started that program. Some of the courses I did well in, there was an atomic physics course that I, I did very, very well in. But other courses, I my mind was not on what I was doing on top of being... Um, you know an african american woman in a field dominated by white men i also loved fashion and i loved makeup and my mind was on you know which which movie was getting nominated for best picture that year and that was where my attention was and so again i'm i'm a phd student in astrophysics at wisconsin madison and i find an acting course somewhere on the campus to take and i think it was an undergrad acting course and and it was, like, such a relief. I That was where I was enjoying myself. Um, and so I made the decision during that first year to apply to acting schools again. And I sort of did it on the down low. I, I, <laughs> I took buses to Chicago and, and auditioned again. And this time I got in um, to UCLA, to their MFA acting program. And... I decided to defer from this Ph.D. program in astrophysics, and I moved out to L.A.
0: So you went to California to pursue learning about acting and acting, and you were eventually in the the movie Nine Lives. I was. Which I saw, and you were very good. Thank you. It was clear you were totally at ease in front of the camera. So you were doing something you loved. But then, then after years, how many years were you there pursuing an acting career?
1: It was all told about eleven.
0: And then, at that point, as much as you loved acting, you turned back toward astronomy again. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, yeah. And in, in my book, I say it's, it was a full solar cycle. Eleven <laughs> years, <laughs> I was right. gone. I, when I first started in acting grad school, I. I came alive. It was like I had been told without being explicitly told, but I had understood that with science, with a technical field, how I felt about what I was doing was not was not that pivotal. I think there's that, that there's that inherent objective quality about the sciences that can lend itself to the assumption that one's Feelings and opinions are not valid, or at least not encouraged, um, in what they're doing. And that's at the time that was what the message that I got. And then, in, then here I am in acting grad school, and they are asking me about my feelings. They're asking me to to think about experiences that shaped me all the way back to childhood and bring those feelings and emotions up and have them right under the surface something like you know Jupiter's moon Europa has this icy surface it's so fresh because it's constantly being resurfaced the same things that hit our planet and that hit have hit the moon have hit Jupiter's moon Europa but because Jupiter's moon Europa has this icy surface they get those craters and impacts get covered up by the heat and the the water that's created when when uh, you know a large asteroid, you know meteorite um, impacts that surface, and I had to have these feelings fresh, fresh under the surface, so that I could pull them out and use them as tools to to create a character as an actor. And so it seemed like to me at the time, finally, someone cares about how I feel. You know, someone wants me to. Talk about every emotion I've ever had and use it in a character like this. It just, it's, it felt so personal.
0: But you may be the only actress in the world who compares that experience to the moon of, of Pupil.
1: <laughs> and, you know, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I get the impression from your book that this was a pivotal time for you. You did a science show. You, were, you did a, I, I think it was a pilot for a science show where you were the host. And it seemed like a perfect combination of these two loves you had. And you didn't get chosen to, to host the show, the series. But right around that time, isn't that when you had a, a meeting with Neil deGrasse Tyson and he gave you advice that sounds to me like it was really important advice?
1: It was. Yes, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I... After acting grad school, I was doing very odd odd jobs to to pay the bills while I auditioned. And, you know, I got the 9 Lives gig and I thought I'd made it. And for a while it seemed like I had, and then, you know, then it was sort of back to back to the grind, back to auditioning. And then I had a friend ask me if if I liked that career or that that topic that I had gotten my bachelor's degree in at MIT you know in the sciences and astronomy and cuz i could probably get a better paying day job or odd job doing that and i i realized i did and so i got a job at caltech working for the spitzer space telescope which is a telescope at the time you know it was it was taking images of the universe but like in like hubble it's in space but it's looking with infrared eyes instead of visible eyes and so it's really good at um taking pictures and taking data of the dust between stars and young star formation. And, and I was their help desk operator. And all I needed was a bachelor's degree for that job. And I would refer the more complicated questions up to the PhDs on the team. And in taking that job, I, uh, and I never you know mentioned that I had this acting, this MFA in acting on my Resume. When I did the interview, because I didn't want to be labeled as a flake, as a lot of as a lot of actors in L.A. are um, thought of by people who aren't actors. So it was just right there on the resume, but I didn't bring it up. And so they hired me. And and once they saw that I was dependable, they weren't. There wasn't. It wasn't an issue for me to disappear for a longer lunch to have an audition. <laughs> and while I was there too there was a notice that got sent around for this new show called Wired Science that Wired Magazine and PBS were collaborating on. And it was this um, right, a science news magazine-style show, and they needed hosts. And because they had seen on my resume, my bosses had seen that I had this acting background, they forwarded the announcement to me, and I sent my headshot in and my info, and they were like, we need to get you into producers today, mm. and, and I ended up getting that that gig, and and it was so much fun. I got to go to Yellowstone and interview uh, scientists who are working on what we call extremophiles, and then I got to also like be the host, you know, in the studio, um, you know, introducing different segments. And then, as you as you mentioned, you know, our this show was in competition with two other shows on PBS two other news science, news magazine-style shows. And when we found out that Wired Science was the one that won and got greenlit for more episodes, I was elated. Again, I thought, like, I'd made it! This is it! This is the perfect combination of my science background, my acting background. Like, I couldn't have planned this out myself. Um, And then I got the call from my agent that they were going in a different direction with the hosts. And it was... I mean, there really weren't enough. There weren't enough tears to be shed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how did How did Neil deGrasse Tyson come into
1: it? Yeah, so I went back to my job. I mean, of course, I was continuing my job at the help desk. I think I'd gotten some vacation time to to do the the filming, and I answered a help desk ticket from one of the astronomers who had an active observing program on the spacecraft Spitzer, and. I don't know what prompted me to do this, but I Googled her and saw that she had an acting background. And so I wrote in my message, I answered her her question about her observing program, and I I mentioned my background. And she responded and said, you should meet my friend, Neil deGrasse Tyson. By the way, he loves the movie Happy Feet. (laughs) And so she, you know, true to her word, she put us in in touch via email. And Neil said that he had seen the pilot for Wired Science. um, And he told me that that there are a lot of people, basically, that want to be on television. (laughs) But the number of people that want to be on television, you know, that perhaps have a face for television and have the background that they need, in this kind of a show, like the science background, to qualify them to be on this kind of a show is very small. And so what he was saying was, if I really wanted to be, like, to make myself as qualified as possible for a future opportunity like this, I needed to go back and get the PhD. I needed to have that, what he called the street cred, um, to really have the longevity in this kind of a career of science TV. And that really, that message of like, go back and get the PhD at the time, it was not what I wanted to hear. You know? <laughs> in many ways, I felt like I'd, I'd been set free from, you know, all that hard, extra hard work. I mean, acting grad school was, don't get me wrong, it, it wasn't easy. It was very difficult, but it was difficult in a very, in a very different way, you know. Um, and, and I also had gotten the same message to go back to get the PhD after I had applied to the astronaut candidate program. I had applied at least once by that time and had just barely met the minimum qualifications.
0: You actually applied to the astronaut program. I did.
1: I got laser eye surgery.
0: So you went to the trouble of having your eyes surgically (laughs) open and they still didn't take you?
1: I know, right? Look, Uh,
0: I I let them stab my eyes. Why won't you take me? (laughs) Look
1: what I did for you. Um, and I also hired a physical trainer to whip me into shape. Um, I was was, doing, was
0: it the lack of PhD you think standing in the way?
1: I, I that would be my bet. I mean, they what I got was a postcard in the mail that was like, "Thank you for applying. We've had thousands of applicants, and we're, you know, unfortunately, we're not able to to pass you on to the next stage." But I would have imagined that if I'd had the PhD, I would have had a better chance of getting to that next stage.
0: When we come back from our break, Aomawa Shields tells me how her research team checks out the likelihood that small rocky planets and other solar systems could be harboring life. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the Center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Aomawa Shields. We've been talking about how after 11 years pursuing an acting career, she returned to her first love, astronomy. Well, well, you finally got the PhD. And my memory is that your thesis was about exoplanets.
1: Is that right? It was, yes. Yes
0: which is your life's work now. Yes. And you do an interesting thing. Once a planet is identified as being the right distance, the Goldilocks distance from its star, that's when you get to work to see if possibly there's life there, life as we know it. And how do you go about that?
1: Yes, our work, my team's work starts once the planets have been found. And finding a planet around another star is hard enough, for sure.
0: And yet they found about 5,000, I understand.
1: We have five over 5,000 now exoplanets that, wow. are, that are known. And that's really through surveying the tiniest fraction of our own galaxy, and let alone the fact that there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies within our yeah. observable universe. So we've really only scratched the surface, and yet still that's an awful lot of planets that we have to choose from. And so... Our team really starts from the question, how do we choose from the over 5,000 planets that we know of so far, which ones to follow up on with the next generation of space telescopes to tell whether those planets are habitable and maybe even inhabited? We have to understand that being habitable, meaning being amenable for life, having the kind of environment, the kind of climate that could allow liquid water to flow on the surface that's how most of us define a habitable planet warm enough for liquid water that doesn't mean that there is life there and so those are two separate things that can often get confused in the press (laughs) but that's our job really in our on our team is okay you found a planet in the habitable zone the goldilocks zone let's see how habitable it really is Mm. um and what we can do is we can we use computer models, models that were created historically to predict the climate and weather patterns here on Earth, and have been used to highlight and underscore the um, dramatic effect of climate change on into the 2100s. We're using these these very models that are um, being used to do that. But what we're doing is we're changing certain aspects in our models that allow us to simulate the potential climates of exoplanets. One of the first things we change is the host star, right? Different types of stars emit different amounts of light. Hmm. And the type of light that we get from the sun is very different, has a different distribution, than the type of light than, that another planet might get around a red star. Um, we call these stars M dwarf stars. These cool, small, red stars that are seventy percent of all stars. The majority of all stars in our galaxy are these M stars. And are we one of them? Earth star is a G star. The sun is called is a G dwarf star. So it's that means it's a little bit hotter and brighter than these M stars. So it, the, most of the light that we get from the sun is in the visible part of the spectrum. And, you know, we get, we get light in the infrared and the UV as well. That's why we have to wear sunscreen, because we get UV light from the sun too. But most of the light is in the visible. And so it's no secret that, you know, we, our eyes are trained to see visible light, right? That's the majority of the light that we get from the sun. But if our planet orbited an M star... These red stars, most of the light that we would get from those stars would be in the infrared part of the spectrum um, and the near-infrared. And so the interesting thing about that is that different surfaces respond differently to the type of light that they get from their star. For example, water ice loves to reflect visible light which is, as I said, most of the light that we get from the sun. So on our planet, if ice forms, it likes to reflect the visible light back away. And what that does is cool the ice down more, and often more ice grows, reflects more light, and temperatures can get even cooler. But if you put that water ice on a planet orbiting an M star, which emits mostly near-infrared and infrared light, Water ice loves to absorb infrared light, not reflect it, huh. absorb it. And so that ice can absorb a lot of the light that M stars emit, and that that could mean that there's not a whole lot of ice on an M dwarf because these, these planets end up being warmer on average than planets around a sun-like star. So this type of interaction is what my dissertation focused on. And that's what our team, we look at how different surfaces can interact with different types of light from their host stars, different surfaces on on the planets. We look at how the atmospheres might interact with light. And we determine if a planet that's found can be habitable across a, a wide range of different surface compositions, atmospheric compositions, Orbital configurations. If we can throw at it in our computer model all sorts of different configurations and, and situations, and the planet still is warm enough for liquid water to flow on the surface, we put that planet to the top of the list. Mm. You know, and that allows us to tell, um, you know, organizations like NASA, hey, we think that this planet should be a priority for follow-up with missions like James Webb and. Um, and the next generation of missions that could look in their atmospheres and look for what we call biosignatures, right? Signs, fingerprints of, of life actually being there. But we have nothing, we have no kind of information really about the atmospheres of, of these Earth-sized exoplanets. Out of the 5,000 planets we know of so far, a small fraction are around the size of the Earth. And being around the size of the Earth is a good thing when it comes to the potential for the planet to be habitable. Because if it's smaller, it's probably gonna be rocky. We know that from statistics. And if something is rocky, then you could put an ocean on it. You know, mm. if it's, you can stand on it, you can put um, put oceans on it, and we know on our planet where there's water, there's life. And so that's why we're looking for those smaller ones. But, but since we don't have information about atmospheric composition, surface composition for the smallest, these, these small planets, Our work is really crucial, those of us in computer climate modeling, because we fill in the gaps between what's known observationally and what isn't.
0: I think what's really fun about your life so far is that after all of these experiences and jostling back and forth between acting and science, astronomy, you finally combined them your fame lab talk which is a worldwide competition for communicating science your talk came in as the audience favorite and your ted talk has drawn millions of views and you've reached the point where it not only is your own personal experience combining those things but i get the impression that you're combining your two loves in your program called rising star girls you're using it to reach young women yes who otherwise might fall into the problems that you felt when you were starting. Yeah. How does that program work?
1: So when I was in grad school, I was applying for postdoc fellowships and the national science foundation has a wonderful combination of requirements for a postdoc fellowship that I, that I admire, which is not only do you need to propose to do some sort of research program, but also an educational outreach program. And I thought, you know, I wanted to combine my two backgrounds. And I was able to find confirmation in the education literature of how important the creative arts really are for scientific learning and understanding for a specific group of young women. Um, Middle school, at that age between 10 and about 14 or 15, is this crucial time when girls start to get quiet they start to answer questions less often. They don't raise their hand in class. Um, they start to become more concerned about their physical appearance and less concerned about what they think and feel about the world. Um, and that, that rang true for me. That resonated for me. Um, and it also shows in the education literature that if you use kind of arts, um, role-playing uh, literary exercises that act, that could actually increase increase the confidence on these in these girls to ask and answer questions um, in astronomy
0: what kind of things do you do
1: so I, I came up with this program to encourage girls of all colors to learn about the universe using theater writing and visual art um, and so in our minds the science and the arts there's they're not as disparate as people might have once believed, that they actually can be interwoven. Um, So we're bringing a personal connection to every single lesson about the universe. So the girls are learning about planets, stars, galaxies, but they're learning about it through a creative arts-based lens. So they learn about how constellations are merely patterns in the sky that many, many cultures have studied and created their own myths around. And they get to create their own imaginary constellations using, for example, black construction paper and a hole punch. And this particular um, lesson comes from another another program called Dark Skies, Bright Kids that I want to remember to, to give credit to from Kelsey Johnson at UVA. But it was very much in, uh, in line with our approach of like the creative arts. The, the girls, not only do they cut out You know, punch holes in black construction paper, but they also get to create their own origin myths Hmm. about these constellations. They get to learn about exoplanets and how diverse they are, and how much we know and how much we don't know about exoplanets, and they get to design their own exoplanet. They create a visual representation, the very same sort of artist depictions that we see that NASA does, they get to make their own of exoplanetary landscapes. Um, they get to make choices about how many stars the exoplanet orbits because they learn that some exoplanets orbit two, three stars, triple star systems, double star systems. They get to make choices about um, the environment, whether there's there are mountains, oceans, if there if there is life, what kind of life? If there isn't life, why? Um, and they get to, you know, measure the distance from, from the Earth to another planet in units of themselves rather than in kilometers or astronomical units. You know, we're, we're bringing it back to them. Um, they write poems about galaxies and planets so that if they stay in astronomy and astrobiology, which we hope they do, and they progress through their careers and the heavy math comes in, as it will, in junior high and high school, they'll be less likely to leave the field, if they have developed a personal connection to what they're learning about. They can look up in the sky and say, you know, I see the moon. I wrote a poem about that moon. That's what I'm learning about.
0: It sounds like along the way to learning the totality of what they learn in class, that seeing it all through an art lens makes it stick. That personal connection with what they're learning sounds really important.
1: Yes, that's exactly why we do it. You know that they 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 can claim ownership of the universe because it's theirs as it is everyone's, and they are an integral part of it. Um, and they can't get it wrong. I think that's really crucial for the girls at this stage. And again, we're we're focusing all girls are welcome in our workshops. So we carry out virtual workshops annually. We're gearing up for our next one that starts at the end of July. It's a two-week workshop, and we are we have girls registered from all over the country. And we're hoping to move, I think we actually have three girls from other countries this year yeah. for the first time ever. Um, and we also carry out educator webinars where we show educators from all over the world, and every year we have educators from Europe and South America and um, the Middle East, all learning about our curriculum, because we have a teaching and activity handbook um, that includes activities both from other programs and also ones that we've created ourselves, like the Design Your Own Exoplanet um, activity And we show them how to carry them out with girls in their own communities. And that's helping to sort of broaden the impact of this work. And we hope to move into the stage of actually going back to in-person and maybe even doing some destination workshops. I have a dream of of taking um, some facilitators to countries in Africa to carry out workshops directly. Um, But yes, this is this idea that like, in the sciences so much is fact based you know and that can bring up a lot of fear at this early age of like if i get it wrong does that mean i'm stupid or you know not cut out for this field and so instead of of teaching them something that they can either regurgitate on a test well or poorly we're now we're expanding this idea of what learning and discovery is when it comes to the universe it's not merely understanding information. It's also processing that through their own backgrounds and environments. They get to use their own histories, their family history, to explore and discover and understand what they're learning about the universe. They get to go home and tell their families, some of whom they've never mentioned their interest in science with before. Um, And we can see through our assessment metrics that the amount of time they talk about science exponentially increases between start from start to, to the end of the workshop. Mm,
0: that's great. You're not only searching for life on other planets, you're encouraging life on this planet. It's great. Doing our, best. Our, our time has come to an end for our conversation, but we always end every conversation with seven quick questions. Here's the first question. Of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood?
1: The human body.
0: Huh. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Gently. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: Well, I often get asked about black holes, which isn't necessarily that strange because I am an astronomer, but it doesn't have much to do with what I do for my specific research.
0: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: With silence. (laughs) Let's
0: say you're at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you strike up a genuine conversation?
1: I'm going to circle back around to the acting, you know, that my acting experience allowed me to really identify my feelings in a way that I hadn't before. And I think when I start with feelings with, a, with someone I met for the first time, it creates a, a, a relaxed quality because I'm kind of going below the surface of small talk. So I might start with, you know, how are you feeling about being here or, or even share how I'm feeling about being Mm. in that environment first.
0: Next to last, what gives you confidence?
1: Having a connection to, um, a power that's outside of myself, whether it's the universe or some other power, knowing that it's not all about me and it's not all, um, uh, my responsibility.
0: Okay, last question. What book changed your life?
1: So I read a book called The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, and I've never gotten it out of my mind. Um, That first chapter really showed me what incredible writing could look like um, when it was done well.
0: This has been a really fun conversation because your life is tracked in such an interesting way. you become an important scientist and an important communicator at the same time. And it's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: The pleasure's been mine. Thank you so much, Alan.
0: Thank you, Aomua. This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Aomawah Shield is Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Her team there focuses on exploring the climate and habitability of small exoplanets. The project she funded to encourage girls to become astronomers has its 2023 virtual workshop beginning later this month. You can find details at risingstargirls.org. And her book, published today, is Life on Other Planets, a memoir of finding my place in the universe. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shed, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Steve Sloman and Phil Fernbach about a book I found eye-opening. It's called The Knowledge Illusion. The Knowledge Illusion is the human
1: tendency to think we understand things better than we do. And this is true not only of everyday objects, but it's also true of our understanding of other people, of political situations, of moral issues, of all kinds of things. And we believe that the cause of this phenomenon is that we tend to fail to distinguish what we know from what the people around us know. If other people in our community understand it, than we think we do. Steve
0: Sloman and Phil Fernbach. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.